Can you hear me? Okay, good. Every time I see all these squares, I just miss all of you. been thinking more about this um, focus on refuge. And something Tia talked about yesterday reminded me of things we've talked about before when she was talking about doing the dishes and refuge not being apparent but bringing forward devotion. And I think we've talked about in the past that when there's not refuge, devotion is the kind of the gateway. That refuge often isn't something that is simply there. We might feel it when we first show up to practice. Maybe in the beginning we have a sense of the space being a refuge from the world around. I think certainly many people felt that way about Carroll Street. But the Sangha being refuge, that might be a little trickier. And if we have... Um, if we have a sense of refuge without devotion, our refuge can be kind of picky. It's like, if these Sangha members are present, then it's a refuge. But if these Sangha members are present, it's not as much a refuge. It's a refuge if it's turned 20 degrees this way, but if we turn it 20 degrees this way, it's not a refuge. So I think this is a really important point about the relationship between devotion and refuge. <coughs> and devotion, to go back to Tia's conversation about doing the dishes, devotion to the dishes, it's not a, it's not um, just a felt experience. We're not devoted to it. We're not devoted to the dishes if we're standing in front of them and just feeling good about them. We're devoted to the dishes in our cleaning of the dishes. We're devoted to the dishes in the service to the dishes. We're devoted to the Sangha, not, not simply because we feel good about the Sangha. And it's nice. And certainly sometimes we find refuge in the Sangha just by walking in the door. But that refuge doesn't tend to mature on its own. That refuge tends to mature through devotion and service and work and being with each other and caring for each other and calling each other up and 
being's relationship to service. Which is a very interesting, difficult area of exploration, service, and the work that is associated with it. We have so many painful messages around it, painful histories around it. No, there's no way to, when I think of this relationship between refuge and devotion, and then devotion being related to service in a way that really is like two feet in walking, right? There is, there is a service that's not devotional, there is a devotion that doesn't include, that maybe is more shallow and felt sense, that doesn't include the, the actual doing of something. Together they, they, they fulfill each other in a way that I would say is wholesome. Not martyrdom, not service to the point of crushing us, forgetting about us. That wholesome, ser the wholesome service, the devoted service has to, in our way, include us. We're not outside of the circle of devotion and service. If we were outside of the circle of devotion and service, then it certainly would never mature into refuge. That would be impossible. A devotion and service that doesn't include our well-being and our care cannot possibly become a refuge. But there is no maturing and deepening of refuge that doesn't include devotion and service in my experience. Refuge is not easy. It's not um, handed over. It's not just sitting around. Maybe from a, a kind of child's view it is. <laughs> you run home and everything's taken care of. And it's your refuge. And that's good. That's how it should be for a child. We hope. Rarely true, but we hope. Um, but as we grow up, that's just not what refuge is. Refuge is being in service to one another. At least if we're going to talk about the refuge of Sangha, that's built through that service. But we have this very... Um, I was thinking about this for myself and my own relationship to work and service coming into Zen practice, and it was complicated. It was not um, easy. And the image, when I was thinking about it, I had this image, and I think I've talked, I've talked about this in, in, in Dharma talks before, but, but at least one, but there was something that really struck me when I was little, I think I started working, going on service calls. Service calls are where my, my father repaired heaters and furnaces and air conditioners and other things, odd jobby kind of stuff. And um, I probably started going on these around eight years old, old enough to tell the difference between tools and bring them. And I remember going into other people's houses and being terrified because um, 
my father was very anxious about not um, hurting, breaking, marking anything, causing any damage. I was young, so I probably wasn't careful. And to have that, um, and these houses were considerably nicer than the houses that we lived in. And they were owned and as opposed to rented. And people have different relationships to houses when they own them. In terms of, often in terms of their um, protectiveness. And so all of that was there. And, and service in that way was... Um, was painful, it was not cheerful, it was not refuge, it did not bring joy. <laughs> it was necessary. So so there was that piece of it, and then there was, there was this very German Protestant piece of, of work where you just worked for, you just always worked. And so that came, that came in. And when you pair that, so that's a personal piece, but when we pair that with with service in a country where a lot of service is just simply exploitative, burns people into the ground, um, it's rooted in enslavement, it's rooted in boarding schools that for native people, it's... rooted in the oppression of women, it's rooted in so much that um, it's rooted in an everyday economic system that, that isn't so caring about how it uses people up. And that is rooted in all those histories. It's rooted in drawing the labor out of one community for another community, leaving nothing left for that community to care for itself. So, to then say that refuge requires devotion and service and the work that comes along with service, not, not a straightforward phrase, not a straightforward situation. For whom? What's the authority? What are the power dynamics? All of that's in play. And so I think there's a tremendous amount of work, at least for me, there was and always is, teasing out these very violent forms of service very exploitative forms of service from something that is more wholesome and and I, this is no small detail at least in my understanding of the Dharma it's no small detail because the central principle of what it is to be liberated and awake is to realize dependent co-arising, is to realize my causal inter... that my inter-causal reality as a being, that I am being caused and, and I am causing in everything that I do. 
And so what is it to be causally wholesome? From a human perspective, from a human orientation, what is it to be wholesomely causal, causally wholesome? And as I move along in this, more and more it becomes really clear that it is the recognition that this life is in service of other lives. That this liberation is in service of other liberations. <laughs> that... that that um, orientation of devoted service is what it is to be wholesomely, dependently co-arisen. If I'm self-oriented, still dependently co-arising, still interconnected, still all of these things, but... Um, but not in a way that bows. I think it was in the f Friday night class, maybe? I can't remember. I mix up teaching so many things right now. I'm confused when things are said. But um, there was one conversation about um, what is the one practice that all Buddhists, regardless of tradition, abide by and um, and it's bowing right? it's the bow it's not meditation it's not a particular kind of chant the thing that is thread through all Buddhist traditions is to bow to each other everybody at least in our tradition everybody to everybody And to meet life in bowing, to meet life in um, a recognition of being available for what's in front of us. And this being available for what's in front of us is, um, it's the practice of dana, it's the practice of generosity, it's actually the practice of all the paramitas, but we start with dana. It's the practice of letting go of everything that resists that bow of clarifying everything that resists that bow, of clarifying past trauma around something that mimics that kind of a bow, clarifying unwholesome relationships to different kinds of um, ducking, being small, being humiliated, that we confuse with that bow. Because that bow to the sacredness of another person's being that I am um, availing myself to is also my full availing myself to myself and recognizing myself as equally deserving of that bow completely. 
and that when somebody does that back to me, they are recognizing that, and in their recognizing it, I can recognize it in myself, and in my recognizing them, they can recognize it in themselves. That's what we hope. But a lot of stuff comes up in all of that. <laughs> a lot of confusion. And it's, you know, just to stop for a moment and to recognize how deeply tragic it is. That in our mutual availing of ourselves to one another, there is so much historical harm that comes up in that attempt. In our um, deep need, desire, hope, to find refuge through being able to be freely devoted to one another there is all of this and so as we often say we have to devote ourselves to what's in the way of that devotion right that's the first devotion <laughs> we can't get to i'm devoted to the person so i'm devoted to what's in the way of my devoted to the person I'm devoted to understanding that. And if there's something in the way of seeing that, I'm devoted to that. I'm devoted, I move back until there's something I can be clearly devoted to. That I can be devoted to seeing. That I can be devoted just to the practice of seeing. But with all of these things, you know, Tia talked about how being devoted to the dishes changed her relationship to the dishes. That she cared about them. It wasn't just about getting them done. It wasn't up here. Mindfulness kind of can be here. Devotion pulls us into the heart. We experience and listen in a different way with devotion, we listen with the heart of a bodhisattva when we're devoted. We may or may not be doing that when we're aware. We can be very aware and not have the heart of a bodhisattva. Snipers are very aware. Awareness on its own, without the heart, doesn't take us along that path. When a bodhisattva is listening with their heart, they're hearing differently. We've been hearing gunshots over the last few days. If we're simply listening, we hear gunshots. But it was, it's the beginning of turkey season. If we're listening with our hearts, then there's this flinch that happens every time the gunshot happens because it could mean the death of a being at that moment. 
and the impact of the recognition of the death of a being at that moment is a different way of hearing than simply that's the sound of a gunshot. To devote ourselves to that kind of hearing when we're reading the news, when we're hearing about what's going on, to hear with our hearts in that way. Now, when we hear with our hearts in that way, we have to rest, especially in these days. We can't just go on hearing that way. But I think when we let ourselves hear with our hearts, we know to rest. The need for rest is clearer when we hear with our hearts, when we listen with our hearts. When we're simply reading this kind of intellectual engagement of suffering, it can become addictive, it can become, I'm doing this so I can figure out how things are going to play out. There's, there's all kinds of things that can happen. We become kind of, we have a, we can develop a bit of a junky relationship to that kind of information. And then we're just on it, on it. But if we're hearing with our hearts, at least in my experience, if I look at myself, the difference between the two, one doesn't know when to stop. The other one does <laughs> know when to stop because the heart gets too heavy. The heart doesn't need any more convincing. And the heart turns, the heart allows us to turn our energy not to the consumption of more pain, but to a devotion to stop it. To a devotion to try to understand ways to make this stop. With our bodies, with our activity, with the way we speak, with the way we move through the world, with the people we talk to, in our jobs, in, in our particular areas of influence. We all have different areas of influence. And in those areas of influence, depending on our position, we, there's an opportunity for the heart to be devoted. There's an opportunity for service. There's an opportunity for the work of a bodhisattva, the endless work of a bodhisattva. And for me, in my experience, this is strangely, this process is what deepens refuge. Because when I'm hearing with my heart, when I'm coming from my heart, when I'm working from my heart, when I'm serving from my heart, um, I start seeing from my heart. And I start seeing what is available to me all the time, and what is there for me, and what is holding me. And um, I don't just hear pain. I hear the loving support of the earth, I hear the loving support of my ancestors, I hear the loving support of my sangha.
but I can't hear that until I, this is a very interesting thing. Others may have really clear ideas how it's related. I don't seem to be able to hear that until I first choose to be devoted. At some point I choose to be, at some point I chose to be devoted. And when I chose to be devoted, I could start seeing, it's really interesting, I could really start seeing what my teachers had done for me. I kind of had an idea before. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> but when devotion came up in that way, when I put my body, when my body became involved, when my actions became involved, when my life became one of, um, and this is still a struggle for me, you know, do I really want my life to be a, of service 24 hours, seven days a week? Is that something I really want, you know? And the egoic part of me is like, no, I don't really want this, you know? But the part of me that is settled and clear knows that there is no other meaningful way to live in alignment with life's dependent, interdependent caring for itself. But life is always caring for itself. And if I'm going to be a part of life caring for itself, clearly, with clarity, then that is, that's the life. If I'm going to be a part of love, that's the life. And I will probably, from time to time, wrestle with that clarity. Especially if I don't allow myself to rest enough, <laughs> then I really start wrestling with it. So we need the rest, we need the care of ourselves to be a part of that. We need to recognize the confusion that all of us are carrying to some degree or another around what it is to be of wholesome service versus what it is, all these confused ways that we've been trained. Some we share, some are very distinct to our particular stories. And to clarify that so that we can come forward in a way that cares for us and actually gives us a pathway to liberation because there is no, at least the way we talk about it in this tradition, there is no path to liberation without refuge. There's no path to liberation without refuge from, refuge in something that is not unconsciously going along with our karma. There has to be some refuge that isn't unconsciously going along with our karma. And that requires devotion to the making of a place for that refuge. which is a different way of being in the world. I was, um, I was thinking about 
this and I and, and I ran across something that Dogen wrote and Kaishin and Kiku, please forgive me for saying any of these Japanese words. Um Dogen has a, a long list. I'm only going to say some of them. <laughs> it's this very long list. And uh, this is in the fascicle Instructions on Kitchen Work, which is different than, than the one we all know. This is the fascicle 82 in the Shobogenzo. And he just goes on and he talks about what to call things. Call the morning meal onkayu, and do not bluntly call it kayu. <laughs> Call the midday meal ontoki, and do not call it toki. Call the midday meal saiji. Now, I'll explain why this matters. One version of the word is the honorific version, and the other one is the everyday mundane version. And he goes on with everything. He says, he says, um, Sei shirome maira seyo. You want to read it? <laughs> you want to read it? Yes. Here, read this. What's that say? <laughs> I said it badly. Instead of, instead of yonetsuke yo. This is also very old. Please serve the rice. Yeah. So essentially, and I don't even know if people. If, I don't know if this is the way people speak Japanese anymore. Old. Yeah, it's old Japanese. So, <laughs> so it's it's even baffles Porkiku. Um, but it's just basically the difference between saying "please serve the rice" rather than "put the rice on." And it goes down this list of using the honorific form instead of just the mundane form. And. Um, And he couches all of kitchen practice in a way of speech and activity that is about honorific devotion to the activity that is at hand, rather than, I'm just getting this done. And he spends a great deal of effort and time on this. So he, clearly it's important. And as we know, I mean, for Dogen and for our tradition, that, as, as um, Laura and Tia and others have taught us many times, that this bringing of devotion to this is what, um, in some ways you could say, our bringing of this honorific devotion to this is what makes it the a refuge of practice is what makes it another zendo, is what makes it the place that realization can occur. If it's just done in this, I think one of the things Dogen's trying to point out to us is, if we do it in this flippant everyday way, it's not, it's not a Dharma gate. In the same way, everything's a Dharma gate, even if we're ignoring it, it's a Dharma gate. But it's not a Dharma gate in this same conscious way, where we're actually bringing to it the same devotion that we bring to sitting down on our cushion. The same devotion that we're bringing to service, 
the same devotion that we're bringing to everything else. That that, that is, um, because we do this thing, it happens in, um, this is a very unfortunate thing that happens in, in monastic communities, and I think it's a mirror of what happens in our lives, and I think it's something that Dogen was trying very hard to work against, is that the ritual stuff and the study and the zazen, that's the important stuff. And the work outside and the kitchen and everything else, that's just labor. And Dogen was basically saying, and so the service stuff is unimportant. You know, and this other stuff is really important. And we see this talked about again and again throughout um, the history of China and China, where the foolish monks who think what's going on in the Buddha Hall is what really matters and, and nothing else. And um, Dogen is emphasizing the sacredness of engaging service in that way. In Xianan and Xianai, some of you know them, and they gave a Dharma talk not too long ago and taught a few classes. They have an interesting thing. They're from the Zen tradition, but it's a Chan tradition in, in, in um, China. And in their monastery, <laughs> you cannot enter the Zendo for the first two years. You have to work. You work in the kitchen. You work in service. They want to make sure that you're entering the Zendo with the right spirit that you understand that zazen is a function of service, that zazen is a function of the bodhisattva vow, that it's not um, for you. <laughs> and I told this to um, the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, and he said, if we did that in America, no one would come. <laughs> We'd have nobody in any of our Zen centers. But... Um, But I only bring all of this up because um, we're in a time where being able to take refuge in each other, being of service to each other, being a community that can rely on each other, where this is something that we put forward and that we understand that zazen is certainly important, our ritual practice is certainly important, but our Sangha is the thing that will allow all of that to be. And that our deep service to each other is, will really be everything. I'm going to read a very long excerpt from Suzuki Roshi. Because I just think he says it better than I can say it, and I'm going to end with, um, with this very long reading, so I'll read it slowly. And he starts talking about um, work and, then, and the way to relate to work, and then he moves into talking about the Sangha. In the same way my teacher Kishizawa Ian did not allow us to put away 
the Amado more than one at a time. Amado are the, or I don't know if you say Amado or Amado, but they're the, the big wooden things that block the shoji to protect them from storms um, outside the temple. Um, at the end of the building, there is a big box for storing them. Since they are sliding doors, one priest can easily push five or six doors, and another priest can wait and put them in the box. But my teacher didn't like this. He told us to move them one by one. So we would slide each door and put it in the box one door at a time. When we pick up the chairs one by one carefully without making much noise, then we will have the feeling of practice in the dining room. We will not make much noise, of course, but also the feeling is quite different. When we practice this way, we ourselves are Buddha, and when we respect ourselves to care for the chairs means our practice goes beyond the zendo. If we think it is easy to practice because we have a beautiful building, that is a mistake. Actually, it may be quite difficult to practice with a strong spirit in this kind of setting where we have a handsome Buddha and offer beautiful flowers to decorate our Buddha hall. We Zen Buddhists have a saying that with a blade of grass we create a golden Buddha which is 16 feet high. That is our spirit, so we need to practice a respect for things, no matter how simple. In the Zendo, everyone can come and practice our way. Experienced students and also those who don't know anything about Zen, both will have difficulties. New students will have difficulties that they could never have imagined. Old students have the double duty to do their own practice and to encourage those who have just come. Without, ever, without telling them you should do this or you should do that, the old students should lead the new students so that they can practice our way more easily. Even though newer students don't know what Buddhism is, they will naturally have a good feeling when they come to a beautiful Buddha hall. That is the ornament of a Buddha land. But for Zen Buddhists especially, the true ornament of the Buddha hall are the people who are practicing there. Each one of us should be a beautiful flower, and each one of us be Buddha, leading people in our practice. Whatever we do, we are considering always how to do this. Since there are no special rules for how to treat things or how to be friendly with others, we keep studying what will help people practice together. If you don't forget this point, you will find out how to treat people, how to treat things, and how to treat yourself. This is what we call the Bodhisattva way. Our practice is to help people. And to help people, we find out how to practice our way in each moment to stop our thinking and to be free from emotional activity when we sit is not just a matter of concentration. This is to rely completely on ourselves to find absolute refuge in our practice. We are just like a baby who is on, on the lap of its mother. I think we have a very good spirit here in this sendo. I am rather amazed at the spirit. But the next question is how to extend this spirit to our everyday lives. You do this by respecting things and respecting each other. Because when we respect things, we will find their true life. When we respect plants, we will find their real life. 
the power and beauty of flowers. Though love is important, if it is separated from respect and sincerity, it will never work. With big mind and with pure sincerity and respect, love can really be love. So let's try hard and find out how to make a blade of grass into a giant Buddha. I don't need to say anything after that. Um, except thank you for practicing together. Thank you for caring for each other. Thank you for bringing your homes into each other's homes. Because that will be our way forward, is to bring our homes into each other's homes. And um, please practice devotion to one another. And please practice devotion to yourselves. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.